Y'all, Stages is now sponsored by BetterHelp, and I couldn't be more excited because I love therapy. So I encourage you, if you've had a tough year and a half, <laughs> why don't you give them a shot? You can find a therapist that you can connect with. Their resource is thousands of therapists, well-trained and experienced. You can keep looking until you find someone that you click with. They have customized online therapy. They do offer videos, but they also offer phone and live chat sessions. So you don't even have to be seen. You can only be heard. What are you waiting for? Go to BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P.com slash stages. And for our cast members, you get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash stages. Go, go, go. Go find your healing. Go find your happy. Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast. Where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage. First of all, the material to hear Lin-Manuel, I remember the first um, day we all got around the table and Lynn goes, I, I know you guys don't know any of the songs yet, so I'm just going to sing them all. And he started and it was like lights up on Washington Heights. And it was just like this light Explosion. around. Yeah. It was like, who is this guy? And how can I, you know, be a part of this forever? Mandy Gonzalez is one of the names you hear mentioned so often when discussing prominent artists in contemporary musical theater. Aida in the Heights, Wicked, Hamilton. She is a strong, clear, and amplified voice at the forefront of bringing attention to Latinx performers and helping to open more doors on their behalf. She cares as much about her hearth and home as she does about her career. She cares as much about inspiring and supporting young people as much as she does her career. And that is why I respect her so greatly as a mom, a wife, an actor, an author, an activist, a cancer survivor, a kick-ass supporter fellow of the woman artists. Please welcome to Stages Podcast, Mandy Gonzalez. Mandy Gonzalez, can we have you to the stage, please? Mandy, to the stage. Oh, hi, guys. Oh, that was amazing. Thank you. (laughs) You are so many things to so many people. And right off the bat, does that feel like a huge and although a privilege, but maybe perhaps a heavy responsibility, or is it freeing to you? Mm, That's a great question. I think uh, for me, it's very freeing because when I started in this profession or wanting to be, you know, a singer, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to use my voice and sing as much as I could uh, in my life. My dream was always to do um, something that could change the world. I had no idea um, where that journey would take me, uh, but the fact that I... I, along with my stories, have been able to move people. Um, 
it just, it warms my soul and, uh, it just makes me, um, I guess more motivated for what's next and to keep going. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your cancer survivor journey. Um, I too am in a cancer survivor. So I I like to hear about what you, what you went through and because you're so vivacious and Mm -hmm. full of life and healthy Mm -hmm. and strong now. So. Oh, thank you. Um, You know, my journey started uh, with my first mammogram. Uh, which your I first, your yeah, first mammogram, my very first I mammogram. Uh, yeah, I went and I got my mammogram. I went for my annual checkup. And at that time I was in Hamilton. I was working eight shows a week. Uh, you know, I'm a mom. I was busy, but I was like, you know, I don't think I've been to my annual like OBGYN appointment. I need to make that appointment. And when I went in, she had said, you know, you're at the age now where you can get a mammogram. Um, but, you know, you don't have a family history, so it's really up to you. If you want to get one. How old were you? Uh, I was 40, almost 41. Okay. And, uh, and so she said, it's really up to you. And I said, you know what? I'm going to get one. And so I got a mammogram and on the mammogram, um, it, they found that I had dense breasts. And so mm. I got a call afterwards. And With shadowing. Did they say we saw some shadowing in there? What was no, the terminology? What hap- what ha- no, dense. They're like, dense. her breasts are dense. <laughs> and I said, okay. And uh, they also saw a little cyst. And so they wanted me to come back in six months. They weren't alarmed by it, um, but they wanted me to come back in six months so they could check that out to see if it grew or if anything changed with it. So I got that call uh, between shows on a Wednesday. And so I immediately called my mom in a panic and was like, well, you know, what does this mean? Like, you know, because you're already a little nervous getting your first mammogram. And I said, what does this mean? And my mom's like, ah, don't worry about it. I have dense breasts. We all have dense breasts. And so I was just like, okay, I have dense breasts. Like, this is what it is. And then I went in for um, six months later, again, I was busy. And uh, this thought came into my head as like, I think it's been six months, but nobody's called me for an appointment. So maybe nothing's wrong and I don't have to go in. And then I got a letter that said, "Um, it's your six month appointment, please come in. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go in. And my husband said, why are you waiting? Like, this is your life. (laughs) This is real. You have to go. And so thank God for him. um, Because I went in and uh, I had my another mammogram. And then all of a sudden they had me wait. And then I had to have a 3D mammogram. And then they had me wait some more and I felt, I started to get nervous, you know. Were you and they, alone, Mandy? Or? I was alone, yeah. And then um, they had asked me to come in for an ultrasound uh, to do that. And so I just noticed that they were spending a lot of time with me. And I was in that ultrasound for a good 45 minutes. And, uh, you know, I start talking cause I'm a talker and, uh, the ultrasound technician, she said, I don't want you to be alarmed, but they do see something and they're going to tell you that they're going to want to do a biopsy, but don't worry. And automatically I just start crying. Hmm. And then um, the radiologist came in and everybody was like, why are you crying? And it's one of those things that happen, I think, when you're an actor and you have these emotional things where you're like, maybe I shouldn't be crying. You know, maybe it's just because I'm emotional, you know, but I was scared. And so I I got an appointment for a biopsy. It happened that day. Um, And then they said it would be three days and they'd let me know what the biopsy were. So I went through all those things of what you go through in those three days of is it, is it not? And I remember my husband and I went to lunch and I finally got the phone call. The doctor had said, uh, we're sorry to tell you, but the cells are cancerous. And 
it was like the floor dropped out. Immediately, my thoughts went to my daughter and I'm going to die. And what am I going to do? And she's going to be alone and, and all of these things. And and at this point, how old was your little girl? So this was now two years ago. She was seven, hmm. I think. The biggest thing that I've learned about the cancer journey is uh, the scariest parts are the unknown. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what stage it was. I didn't know what was going to happen next. Um, I'm not from a, a family of doctors, a medical family. So I didn't know the protocols of things, but I learned really fast, you know, and my husband's uh, father is, was a pediatrician, but he, my husband is very comfortable in that setting. And so it was like, okay, let's get a second opinion. My husband did all the calls to find the best possible doctors for me, but I was crazy. Cause I was like in Hamilton, I had this concert coming up with the Philly pops. I was going to be a soloist for the first time. I was like, look, we can do the surgery, but can you make sure that it happens in time for my concert with the Philly Pops? Because, you know, I this is a big deal for me. Like, it was just crazy. And I had a lumpectomy and I had stage one uh, breast cancer. It was found that my cancer was growing rapidly. And so I had to also have uh, chemotherapy as well as radiation. So I had my lumpectomy. I did my show with the Philly Pops. I went through so much um, emotionally. And then in January, I was preparing to start chemotherapy. And I did. I took a week off of Hamilton and I went right back to work. But uh, that's the beginning of my cancer journey. And then in January, I started chemo. I started hearing rumblings about a pandemic that was happening, you know, I started hearing it at the hospital. All of a sudden it was like, everybody was fine. We don't know what it is. And then all of a sudden everybody had masks on and gloves Mm -hmm. and didn't want to touch me or check me. And uh, it was very isolating and lonely. And then Broadway shut down and it was like, okay, in some ways it was a good thing that happened for me because I could just concentrate on my health. Yeah. Yeah. And so I finished chemo, um, you know, they're like, stay home, stay home. But, you know, cancer patients have to keep going because you want to live. And so I finished chemo in April and then I started radiation in May at Sloan Kettering. And I'm happy to say that from my surgery, I am uh, two years uh, cancer survivor, cancer free. And um, I didn't realize, and I'm sure Mary Lee, you can understand that uh, when you go through cancer, you know, nobody tells you like, okay, now you're cancer free and now you're a survivor. You're a thriver. Or what are you? You know, because there's all this different terminology. Do you want to be public about it? Do you want to be private? Nobody talks to you about these things. So I had to figure it out. And, but I decided that I'm a survivor. What was I going to do next? You know, being a survivor, it's kind of like, okay, well, that's it. That means cancer is no longer part of my life. I didn't realize that the emotional healing that would also have to happen. So Mm -hmm. that's what I'm in process with. I think at this point of my, my cancer journey, not being able to have a support group to go to, or, you know, because I am a talker, I think that that would have been beneficial, not being able to go to PT and those kind of things. You know, I've been able to find those people through different organizations and to help me on on that road to healing through that trauma. Yeah. What, what's the biggest thing you learned from that whole experience? I mean, that's a huge experience and, yeah. and, and to go through it really isolated, like you said, makes it even harder. So what, what would you say is the big lesson that you took away? 
I say this to a lot of young people. I think that it's something that I don't practice enough, which is that, you know, I I probably learned it from a therapist. Your life is like a pie and there's all these different pieces that are important, but you have to make sure that you're fulfilling all of those pieces to feel fulfilled. And I think before I was diagnosed with cancer, I was just going nonstop Mm -hmm. with my career. And um, it was like, something would open and all of a sudden I would just go, yes, I would say yes all the time. And I think that I've learned through this time that my private life is so, so important. And my life is important. Just, you know, taking a walk with my dogs and those kind of things are an accomplishment in themselves. And so it was about appreciating, I mean, it's so cliche, but appreciating the small things in your life that are just as great. That's the the biggest thing that I think I've learned. I think for me, what, what I took away from that experience was when you get that kind of news, your brain immediately races to all these places in the future that it could yeah. go, might go, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to my son? What's going to happen to this? What's going to happen to that? And your brain goes to all these places. And what I learned from that experience, and I was able to share it with a couple of other people who I talked to after who got cancer, who I, you know, who called me hysterical and I kind of talked him through. And my advice right. to them was for now, for the next hour, you get to go to all those places. You get to cry, go to every place that's terrifying in the future that you can go to. And then I want you to get a piece of paper and I want you to write down the facts that are facts right this minute. Right. And anytime your brain starts to go to that scary place, just sit down and read your facts. Because it's not real. You're creating it in your brain. Come back to what is right in front of you right now. And I, that practice worked for me really well. And my husband would bring me back every time I would kind of spiral. He'd give (laughs) me like, okay, spiral for 20. And then I'm coming back and we're going to come back, you know, and that's. And I think it's creative people. I think it's creative people. It's so easy for us to to make oh, sure. up a story, oh, sure. to tell a story, to, you know, and for it to go all the way, you Our know, we, we are full are out. Yeah. It yeah. is. And so I think that that's great advice is just to, you know, you allow yourself to have those moments, but in 20 minutes, you've got to make dinner, yeah. <laughs> you know, or you're going to go get your nails done, or you're going to read a book, or you're going to do something um, to live. Have you ever heard of Chris Carr? No, she wrote crazy, sexy cancer. No, she's an incredible story. You really need to look her up. I mean, she's, she's amazing. I've actually reached out to her a couple of times to come on the podcast because I think she's incredible. She was a young actress in New York. Um, She was in her twenties. She was partying. She got diagnosed with this really rare cancer that was creating tumors all over her body. And they basically told her there was nothing they could do for her. And so she said, okay, well, I'm just going to take control of my own life then. And she, she got all these fancy wine glasses and every morning she would make herself green juices and she would drink green juices. And she documented her whole journey through her healing, through her um, chemo, through all of it, turned it into a documentary called crazy, sexy cancer. Mm. She is now like something like 20 something years out. She's built an empire around natural healing. She's amazing. I will oh, check wow. her out too. Yeah. I will definitely check her out. She's that amazing. Incredible. Yeah. I want to awesome. go back because when you are still in sort of the the shock of it all and you're mm-hmm. arranging for the concert being the solo with the pops and you're standing on stage, how did you compartmentalize your thoughts so that you could remember lyrics and you could mm-hmm. be um 
efficient with your banter, I would think that my thought process would just be like, you know, a moth in a cathedral, like everywhere. I think working saved me. Mm-hmm. I think if I had, if they had taken away my ability to sing, uh, if I had let cancer do that, I think then I would have let cancer win in some way. And I said that cancer can have part of me, but it's not going to take all of me. And so when I would go to the show, um, I just felt like, okay, I can just do this. I know how to do this. Mm I am in control. I know how to use my voice this way. And, you know, I had a concert, I had to go to LA um, to do a concert between my diagnosis and my surgery. And I was so distraught, but in some ways it was like, oh, I can see my whole family. I, I, you know, that was one of the hardest things is that I couldn't be with my mom or my sister during my journey because of the pandemic, you know? And so that was really hard. And, and I think that when I was on stage, it was like, I was home, Mm. you know, when, you know what that's like, it's like when you sing or when you are focusing on the music or you're focusing on telling a story in the audience and how much you love them for just being there for buying tickets. You know, it takes that, oh, poor me, you know, feeling away, which is still there. It's just like, okay, you can be there, but just wait a minute because right now this person, yeah, this person has gone through it. And that's what I've learned even just coming back to theater and coming back to Broadway is everybody has gone through a journey of some sort during this time, during this pandemic, we are all, we have all been through the storm, but on separate boats, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I don't, not that anybody's journey was harder or, you know, easier, I just think that there is a kind of empathy that happens um, now more than ever uh, because of everything that everybody's been through. But when I'm on stage, I have that empathy um, that comes through me for other people. Mm-hmm. And um, when I'm writing, when I am talking to young people, it's that feeling that I can leave a little bit of myself behind. And so I think singing really it saved me. Fearless, which is your name of your album, which yes. is your YA book, yes. um, which you have an entire squad, a fearless squad. <laughs> this yes. mission and campaign actually came before your cancer diagnosis, right? Yes, it so did. So what was the genesis of that word, of that extreme and powerful word of fearless? Oh gosh, Steph. You know, it's crazy because I created this squad and uh, I didn't realize that in the end I would be the one who would need it the most, Mm. you know, isn't that the way because I created it for other people because I had young people, you know, back when we started on Broadway, people could write to you. They could write to you letters. It took time, snail mail. It was like, I wrote, wrote them back if they had feelings, but now everything is immediate. DMs. uh, I always leave my DMs open if anybody wants to contact me. And I had a lot of letters from young people about feelings of loneliness feelings that they didn't belong. And so I thought, well, if you don't belong, you can be part of my squad and we're the fearless squad. Who's with me? Did that start with Elfie? Did you receive a lot of outreach? I absolutely did. I absolutely did. And I think a lot of it started uh, with Nina 
was playing Nino Rosario mm-hmm. and uh, playing that character that was the first uh, first generation American and the first to go to college and letting feeling that sense of um, determination, not just for herself, but for her family. And when she lets people down, like what that feels like. And so I had a lot of young people, even today that come to me and say, I'm the first in my family to go to college. And, you know, I struggled with that and it was hard, but I made it. And this song really helped me, you know, and that just means the world to me. But I think it started with Nina and then to go from Nina to Elfie and, you know, her fearlessness, but also her vulnerability, mm-hmm. both of those characters, um, how they were able to, to reach through to young people, people of all ages, uh, so that they could feel a little bit braver. You know, it continues with Angelica and I've been very fortunate, you know, to play these incredible women. So you look at the, the canon of contemporary musical theater and you're like, oh, wow, she did that. Oh, she was a part of that. She was in an indelible, you know, a part of this creation. And in fact, that rolls me right into being part of Lin-Manuel Miranda's chosen family, almost like he has Mm. a repertory company of people that inspire him and he loves to work with, and you all have a shorthand with each other. Mm -hmm. What an awesome, awesome Mm. privilege and beautiful family to be a part of. Did that really just start with an open audition and since then a, uh, a relationship, a bond has been formed? I had done my first show, uh, original show in New York was the show called Dance of the Vampires, which was like a huge bomb. I was there for some Yes, yes. And, you know, and I was, what, 24 when I did that show. And then I went on and I did another show and it was called Lennon and it was based on the life of John Lennon. And uh, again, it was a show that, you know, we loved, but it didn't make it. And, um, and during that run on Broadway, when I was in Lennon, I got a call from my agent that said, there's this new, there's this young uh, composer, he's Latino, and he's looking to cast an all Latin cast. It's a Latin musical. Would you want to go meet him and the team in the basement of the drama bookshop? <laughs> and I was like, well, if you're an actor in New York, of course you've been to the drama bookshop because that's where you get all your new material where you can read plays. But I never knew there was a basement. It's Neither like the Alamo. I. Like who Neither knew? You know, it's like Pee Wee's Big Adventure. But I was like, <laughs> I said, yeah, of course I'll go. And and I went to the basement of the drama bookshop and that's where I met Lin-Manuel Miranda and Tommy Kale. I had already knew uh, Alex Lackmore because I did the first um, workshop uh, in New York of Wicked, uh, the musical, I was in the ensemble, but I met them and we sang some stuff and they were, and I met, I think Bill Sherman was there and they said, would you want to be a part of the reading? And I was like, yeah, okay. I got to the reading. That's where I met Chris Jackson for the first time. And we sang together. Um, Wilson Cruz played my brother, uh, Lincoln, and that's where the journey kind of began. And it all of a sudden, um, I was in a room with uh, other people uh, of the Latinx, Latina, Latinos uh, community uh, for the first time, you know, where it wasn't just one of us, it was all of us. And that was so exciting. It was so exciting, uh, first of all, the material to hear Lin-Manuel. I remember the first um, 
day. We all got around the table and Lynn goes, I, I know you guys don't know any of the songs yet, so I'm just going to sing them all. And he started and it was like, lights up on Washington Heights. And it was just like this light Explosion. around. Yeah. It was like, who is this guy? And how can I, you know, be a part of this forever? You know, and um, we all felt that way. And we believed in, in this show. We believed in Tommy and Kiara and everybody. And we became a family. And then, you know, we went into workshop mode and that's, we added more family members, uh, Karen Olivo, uh, Olga Meredith, and, you know, and then we went to, we moved to Broadway. It was just like a dream, you know, um, an, an incredible dream. And, and I have to say that, that, that friendship, uh, that collaboration has continued through all parts of my life, you know, uh, some people have remained my best friends uh, through that time. And ha- everybody was there for me when I went through breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Tommy was the first person that I called to let him know that that was going on. And it was like, okay, we're here for you. And Lynn manuel it was the same. Like everybody was there. And um, yeah, I don't know if I would have been able to get through what I got through without that, that family that I have. Incredible. When I watched you on the documentary, which by the way, who had that idea? Who said young composer right out of college, who decided let's invest in documenting this from literally day one until they get to Broadway? Because that sort of um, insight and foresight Mm. was so uh, genius because now looking back and you watch that documentary, it's like you're watching these stars being made in real time. And it's oh, so it's like a, and exciting. Oh, it's incredible. And I remember when they told us that it was going to happen off Broadway, we had already had people following us, Andrew Freed and Paul Bosmowski, um, were following us a little bit off Broadway, but not all of a sudden they were like, you know, these guys have been here and this is what we're planning to do. But I have no idea whose idea it was. Um, but, you know, watching everybody from that show, um, watching their lives uh, grow and, you know, the stardom that Lin-Manuel has achieved and all the friends that he's taken along with him. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it just feels so wonderful to see. And from the first moment I met him, that I met all of those people, I knew that um, they were going to change the world. And to see that they did is, um, it's, uh, I just feel so um, proud. You know, I went to see In the Heights. uh, It was the first time I was in the movie theater uh, since pandemic that I'd seen people since I went through all my cancer stuff. But it was just like, wow, I was watching it. And when I was watching with the whole cast, the original cast, and, and I was just like, look what, he was able to do, you know, he had this idea and here it is on screen and he went all the way. And I just think like, sometimes I think about it and I think about him and I'm just like, I'm constantly in awe. Not only is he a really genius, but he is the epitome of fearless vulnerability because he is exactly who he is. And Mm -hmm. he is utterly unafraid to get out there and express the enthusiasm for what he's doing and the vision. I, I remember hearing that story about when Obama had invited him to the White House 
and he wanted him to do something from um, in, in the, the Heights. Heights. And he said, no, I have this new thing. And it wasn't even a thing yet. He had like one song and he's just said, boy, that's fearless. And talk about like, where do you find that trust in but can I truly I who you are? Because saying that he was utterly unafraid, I don't know if we can say that. He might have been scared beyond belief, but he worked past the fear into the fearless. And that to me is yeah. how I define fearless. Because I mean, sometimes I find words coming out of my mouth, even though my insides are complete jello, right? The fear yeah. is really settling hard and it's being noisy in my brain and trying to to shape a different path when my mouth and my heart are going a different path. And I thought, I did it. I could have easily listened to this voice or I could have easily listened to the jello and taken a different path. Right. But moving past that fear and finding the right words to that other place, that's when I feel successful. That's when I feel truly brave, you know? That's it's life. really interesting because when you hit those moments in your life too, you know when you're riding that it's it's almost like a different vibrational level or something. Mm-hmm. And when you jump on that. Even though one part of your brain is going, you're crazy. Another (laughs) part of you is saying, no, 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 I got this. And you don't even know why you know it. But, and he seems like he has access to that vibrational level in a way that most people don't. I agree. Yeah. 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 I've seen, you know, throughout my career, I've been very lucky to, to work with some incredible people. You know, my first job, I was a backup singer for Bette Midler and I went on the road with her and I was able, but to be able to watch somebody in process like that, to watch somebody be so vulnerable, incredibly strong, but she was the boss, you know, and to watch a woman Um, take on that role, you know, where every city that we went to, uh, she would have her writer get all the papers from that city and she would have a new monologue every night. But to be able to see somebody like that from the beginning of my career, take those kind of risks and chances, it's just like, oh, I can, I can do that too. Gives you permission. Yeah. Yeah. To see our heroes, you know, that we grew up with. Um, I mean, I loved, I loved her so much from everything that I've seen Um, to see that. It's just kind of like, oh, but to also see that vulnerable side of like, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm going to try it anyway. And I did. I saw all of those things with her. And, uh, you know, I feel very lucky to have seen that. But I want to go back to being a harlot for a second, because we have another friend who was a harlot. Yes. Um, Camila Marshall. I don't know if you. Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, I know Camila. She was telling us about her audition and she said she had to go in and tell a joke. Did you have to do that? No, I did not have to tell a joke. Um, And I should just clarify, I was not a harlot. Uh, Camila was definitely a harlot. I was um, a singer in I was a pit singer. So I was her backup singer. Oh, did not even so, know there was a Yeah. Thing. I didn't so know either. It's like standby under say, no, it's, um, yeah, so exactly. what it is, is there's the three harlots and this was the millennium tour. So I sang with the band and then I also had crosses that I made. Yeah. Um, I had, I got to dance because it was a bigger show because it was the millennium. Yep. So yeah. I got to do even more, which was so fantastic. I had to wear, um, fishnet stockings with the G string. Um, my dad was at the show. Thank God I couldn't afford, thank God I couldn't afford to get them close up seats, you know? So they were oh like, for 
further in the back. But I think about it now, I was 19. I'm like, I must have looked amazing. Oh my God. You still look amazing. Oh my gosh. What did you guys, I think I saw you at Madison Square Garden then. Oh yeah, we performed the garden. She put us up. I mean, she was, uh, she's just the best. And uh, she put us up at uh, the Plaza. Is it the Plaza? Yeah. Nice. The Plaza Hotel when it was still a hotel and now it's like, apartments. Um, but you know, I really got to, um, see what it was like. And, you know, I was on a tour bus for the first time with people that had been doing this for so long, but I never had to tell a joke. Um, I did, you know, I went to an open call and that's how I got the job. I was in college. Yeah. I went to an open call and I got the job. And so I had to dance. I got like an outfit from Capizio, um, Mm -hmm. a two piece. And I was like, you know, dancing my heart out. I had to sing a three part harmony, uh, you know, all different parts. And then they brought bed in for the last one. And she came in and she was wearing like this gorgeous, like green suit and she had glasses. And I was like, oh my God, like I had no idea about middle wear glasses. Like, oh my God, this is so great. I'm seeing the real her. And she came in and she just sat there. It was the same like when Yoko Ono came in and like she had glasses on too. And she was just like, okay, mm-hmm. show me what's up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I sang for her. And I remember I was singing against another woman who had worked for her as a backup singer. And she goes, she came up to us. She got out of her seat and she came up to us. She goes, um, can you sing that up the octave? And the woman couldn't do it. The other woman. And I was like, ah, ah, you know, and then she I can, I can, I can. Yeah. And she looked at me and she was like, okay. Mm-hmm. And I got the job, wow. you know, but that's my test with Bette Midler was, you know, can Singing you sing up, up the, the octave? octave? And most women would be like, Mm, no, but I'll tell a joke. No, but we both tried in front of each other. We both tried these wow. these two of us. You know, yeah. it's like old school. You know, they don't do that anymore. They put you in a closed room and they're like, yeah. "Okay, let's do it it's, together." I it's mean, different, Mama. If it's Yoko and Bet and Elton John, what was that yeah. experience like? I never met. Uh, really, gosh, Elton. I didn't never make met his way to the theater or rehearsal. No, okay. <laughs> I never okay. met him. But uh, that experience, you know, uh, working for Disney Theatrical happened because I did a show off Broadway called Eli's Coming, um, based oh, on the yeah. music of Laura Nero. Oh yeah, you and were well awarded for that one. You were yes, really that and one. Uh, that st- starred like unknown uh, Anika Nani Rose, myself, Judy Kuhn was a part of that. Ronell mm-hmm. Bay, um, Diane Paulus was our director, and that started my journey here in New York because. It was acclaimed at the Vineyard Theater. Um, people from Disney Theatrical came to see that show and therefore asked me to come and audition um, to be a standby for Adina at Aida. Mm. And uh, that all rhymes, Dina, Aida. But, uh, <laughs> but I did and I got that job and I was such a huge Rent fan. Yeah. Um, Rent was like, my life. Um, I, used, I remember waiting at Sam Goody for that uh, double... I think it was a cassette at that time. I'm like aging myself, <laughs> but I remember waiting for it and then getting that job and working with Adina and uh, just trying to act like super cool. Like it's no big deal. Like right. <laughs> I'm her standby, like, Hey D, you know, but she was so nice. She was so nice to me. And I just, I'll, I'll never forget that. You know, that really, again, was a lesson that I learned on how to treat people. 
that regardless of what position they're in, everybody's important. And I learned that from her because that's how she treated me. And uh, she taught me a lot of things as well, Um, you know, but she was just wonderful. Can we talk a little about your book? Did you write it for your daughter? Yes. You know, I started writing uh, more. I started writing from a young age and then I started writing more when my daughter was born. I started to create stories uh, for these certain characters and uh, it just continued. And I met with um, with some people at some different agencies and uh, literary agencies, and I got a lot of great uh, feedback notes. I applied those and I kept writing. And then um, I created a fearless squad and I continued to write my stories and then I I met my literary agent and I had said, look, I wrote these stories. I met her randomly at a book launch for somebody, for another writer. And I said, I have these stories. Would you want to read them? The story that I went with is a story of Monica Garcia, a talented seventh grader who loves to sing and dreams of a life on Broadway. And along with her abuelita, you follow her journey from a small town in California, hello, to opening (laughs) night on Broadway. And on the way, she meets her fearless squad, Relly, Hudson, and April. And together they learn that um, anything is possible, especially on Broadway. And so it's really become a fearless series because I just finished uh, the second book, and uh, I'm on to the third and then Fabulous. the fourth. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it'll have a story for each of the characters. So the first story really is Monica's story. And it's it brings on all of those things that I experienced first coming to New York, um, you know, with my mom. I wish that it had been my abuelita because my abuelita, I'm um, Mexican-American as well as Jewish. Uh, but my family came over from Mexico and they worked very hard in um on the farm. And my dad grew up working in the farm. And uh, I just always remember my abuelita as always working. Mm -hmm. She would get up in the morning and make everybody their meals, make homemade tortillas. She would make me (laughs) flour tortillas because I was a brat. And, um, (laughs) and then my, she would also go into the fields and work with them and side by side. And I always would dream about what would it be like if I could just take her away for, Mm -hmm. you know, a weekend to New York and we could have this experience together. And so, because we never got to do that, I, I created it. And, um, yeah. And so it was so important for me to, um, for people to, to learn about Monica and her heritage. And, uh, the second book follows Relly Morton, who is inspired by my best friend, uh, Darrell Grand Moultrie. Uh, we met during Aida in the swing room. We shared a mirror and, uh, he has stayed my best friend ever since. And he has become a renowned choreographer. This follows his story. So it takes you into Harlem and into the world of tap dance, which I'm obsessed with. And uh, (laughs) do you find it's a bit more challenging when writing for the other characters? Are you having him interject and give you some thoughts and emotions? I think the first character that I created was Relly. And that was because I just, I love my friend so much. And I always imagined this, these stories around him. And so it wasn't hard to come up with that, but it was very important for me because uh, Relly is uh, African-American that I also include 
that voice. So I did bring on another writer, uh, Brittany Thurman, to collaborate with me on this book so that um, I could feel that the story was told in uh, the right way. And I'm very proud of that. I'm just excited. I'm excited that young people can see themselves in a very authentic way and see themselves in theater and in the arts to know that a life in the arts is possible because as a young person, I would have loved to have those kind of books of somebody um, that looked like me or had my last name in these stories to show that this is possible. To go back to your family, your culture for a second. So your father was Jewish. Your mother was Mexican. Did no, you, my father is Mexican. Well, your and father my is mom Mexican. Is your Jewish. mother is Jewish. So, were you raised with a religion? Yes, I was raised Jewish. So, I had a bat mitzvah. Um, I was the only um, person, probably in Los Angeles, that had uh, a Theo Jesus uh, come <laughs> up on the bima and read during my Torah portion. But my parents met as pen pals um, during the Vietnam War. My father was drafted. Um, at 19. And my mom wanted to join the Peace Corps. She was 17. And her parents said, absolutely not. And she was from like the Valley in California, um, a more affluent family. And they met because my mom wrote to soldiers uh, who didn't have anybody that was writing to them. And uh, she met my dad and they corresponded through a year uh, that he was in Vietnam and my mom kept all the letters. So, um, and she told me never to read them that they were private and she put them in the closet of, um, our hall closet. And so, you know, I'm like super nosy. And so (laughs) I read, um, most of the letters, but I got to, to learn a lot about them and, um, their differences and how they grew up, but they fell in love. And when my dad came back from Vietnam, he left everything behind except his car. And he showed up on my mom's doorstep. (gasps) And she was like, what? So, I mean, not only your culture, but you were raised with two people who were, their words meant everything. Their words crafted their life, essentially. Absolutely. And at that time, it was still, it was the first time that my grandparents um, had really been around somebody who was Mexican and their Mm. family and that culture. And they were not accepting in the beginning and they didn't want my parents to get married. And so my mom said, we're doing it. And they went and they eloped, they went to Reno. And, um, and then my father said, my mom didn't want to talk to, to her family again. And my dad said, this is your family and we, we have to go and be a part of them. So I never knew any of this growing up because I Mm. grew up with an abuelita and a bubby. Like I never knew that there were tensions or anything like that because of the love um, that they had for each other, but um, my father's love for family and uh, tradition and doing what's right. That's amazing that he pushed through and he made that happen. That's a real gift. That's a real gift. Yeah, it is. And now our five questions. If we were to open your closet, is there a clothing or um, something that you will never get rid of because of the memories that it holds? It can be a piece of jewelry or anything that might be in your closet. Um, I sparkle Jimmy Choo shoes. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) I bought those on an opening night and they were the, it was the most expensive purchase I've ever done. And I can still wear those shoes. And I just feel like 
I don't know. I earned there those is, shoes. If there is no good. explanation necessary because they're sparkle Jimmy shoe shoes. That's it. That's right. There is no explanation necessary. <laughs> okay. If you could go back and talk to your teenage self, hmm. what advice would you give her? You're on the right path. Keep going. Don't be so hard on yourself. Just keep going. You can do it. Do you have a good luck charm or a ritual before you embark on something new or an opening night? Or Absolutely. I mean, aside from the fact that I missed um, the legacy robe ceremony uh, on my first opening night, <gasps> Dance of the Vampires. What happened? Did, what happened? Did, did, I didn't know about it. I didn't know that that was like a thing. And so I was like probably going to the bathroom or like doing my makeup. And so did the show close because of my luck or mm. was it the writing? I just don't know to this day. Uh, I am very superstitious. I wear my, um, to ward off uh, evil. I have so elephants. Awful. Yes. Uh, Ojo de Dios. I have elephants everywhere. Um, I'm very, very superstitious when I get into a new uh, Why dressing room. Why elephants? Uh, it's something my dad always did. He always had uh, elephants around our house where the tusks have to face toward the window and it's supposed to bring good luck. Oh, wow. Um, oh, I've never heard of that. Yeah. yeah. So I do that. I also put coins at my doorways uh, because my dad did that when we were kids. I don't know abundance. what it all means. Yes. Yeah. And I do that at, in my dressing rooms as well. So I have a lot of like, a lot of rituals. Okay. If you could have any ability, what would it be? I think to fly. Because I'm terrified of flying. I'm one of those people, like my favorite, absolute favorite album is Judy Garland Live at Carnegie Hall. Oh, come on. And whenever the turbulence begins, I put it on because I feel like if I'm going down, I'm doing it right. If you were a nail polish, what color would it be? And what's the cheeky little name that you would give them? Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. I would say... Because I guess we talked, I talked about this with my daughter the other day. It's so random um, because we were playing Barbies and she always makes me play the Barbie um, Jojo Siwa. Oh, I yes. Know, <laughs> I don't know why. Like that's the only Barbie I'm allowed to play with. Uh, I get to braid her hair all the time in different ways. Um, but we decided that Jojo Siwa was coming to school for the first time and she was going to be wearing bright pink with glitter. So I feel like I would be a bright pink nail polish with glitter and the nail polish would be fearless. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you guys. This was great. This was oh, wonderful. It was great. Continued strong health to you, baby. Yes. Same, same. Yeah. Mm. Coming up next, what struck a chord with us right after a word from our sponsor. Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Our theme song says, love where you are now, but sometimes we all need a little help. I've learned from therapy and in my yoga practice that growth comes from challenges. A good therapist can help you reframe the way you look at a challenge and your life. And BetterHelp can provide you with a therapist that gives you some tools to navigate. They offer customized online therapy, either on video or phone chat sessions. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can reach a therapist in under 48 hours. And right now, Stages cast members get 10% off their first month with BetterHelp, so don't wait. Remember, when you support our sponsors, you support Stages Podcast. So log on to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash stages, and love where you are now. 
That's Mandy Gonzalez. She's lovely. She's such a bright light. She was beaming right through the computer, wasn't she? I was going to totally say that. She So, you know, with every Zoom, the name pops up first, then you press the video. And she came on and it really was like being splashed with a, a cup of water. It, yeah, she it woke was. me up. <laughs> you became alert. You were like, she is so bright. Yes. Like physically, yeah. spiritually bright. Yeah. Yeah. It was beautiful to be with her this morning. Do you know her husband as well? I do. He's an extraordinary painter. So he's a visual artist. Mm. Um, the, you know, it's just interesting when you are in the performing arts or in the arts in any way, and you go to work in the Manhattan, but there are these like little sublets and suburbs around Manhattan where they're just beautiful families making life, making a living with the arts, but you get to see them at the you know, at the plant store, you get to see them uh, just running errands and curating a lovely life for themselves. And that's where I feel the deepest connection is because now we get to see each other like in in all the mirrors, well, not all the mirrors, but many mirrors of the disco ball, right? Mm-hmm. I get to see her as a, as a pal, as a gardener, as a cook, as a, a woman of service. And when you get to see so many different angles of a human, that to me is where the respect just gets so, so deep. Yeah. Yeah. She seems really, really lovely. It was interesting because she was talking about how the singing kind of saved her. Yeah. You didn't have that outlet. No, I didn't because my vocal cord was paralyzed, but, but here's the really interesting thing. I was just telling this story because I taught a yoga thing last week and I go through each chakra and I give usually a life example of the chakra. So chakra five is called Visuddha. It's, it, it means purify and it's your throat. And, you know, the essence is sound and vibration. And so singing is what heals that area. And when your body is processing trauma or um, illness or anything, this is the chakra that helps heal it. So when she was going out on that stage and she was singing, she was literally processing the the pain, the fear, the physical illness itself, the healing from the surgery, all of that comes up and meets in the throat. And then she's singing it out of her body. So she was actually healing herself by being able to compartmentalize where her head was and get out there and, and do the concerts. You know, I would, um, so I've spoken of my voice teacher, Jill Goodsell, who is of course, like an angel second mother mentor to me, but you know, when you take lessons with somebody for that long, you call in sick a lot, you know, so I would miss school and I'd call and say, look, I can't come to my voice lesson. She'd say, well, what are you feeling? And I'd say, well, it's a headache. And I just feel achy all over. And she'd say, no, you have to come. You have to come. If you're going to do anything, come to your voice lesson. I will sing. We will just sing on O's and O's and O's and you will feel so much better. And it took a huge effort to kind of peel myself out of bed or peel myself off the couch to get there. But once there and once singing, I left that studio feeling so much better. And I still use that today. Like if I'm out of sorts or if I'm car sick, you know, Seb will hear me going, yeah. Uh, pretending I'm singing through a straw, anything to get oxygen moving and mm-hmm. to talk to my body. Do you know, you must Deepak Chopra. Oh, of course. His stuff? Yeah. yeah. And so I'm also a huge advocate of that. Like when I'm getting massage therapy, 
I'm talking to my body. I'm thanking yes. it for all it's done. Absolutely. I'm talking to my cells that they are in div- divine order Absolutely. and they're full and they're healthy and full of oxygen. And that sort of affirming all of the different, you know, um, systems in your body. I believe in, I believe it helps. Our thoughts are so, so, so powerful. And when you can apply it like that to healing, it really does work. But even when we know what's good for us, like, even if we know going to the voice class will help me feel better, getting up and doing a little yoga, doing a little Kundalini, let's breathe a little, will help me get out of this funk that I'm in. It's like the last thing you want to do, even though, you know, it's what you need to do. My husband will say often like, come on, let's just go out and walk the dogs. Like if I'm in a mood and, and I know that's going to lift my mood, you know, you just get out, you go walk the dogs. It'll lift your mood. Yet we resist. (laughs) I don't understand the resistance. That's That's what I get. So I don't understand either. Yeah. And, and everybody does it. We all do it. It's like, you know, the little devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other and the angel's going, just go walk the dogs. Just go out in the woods. Just get a little negative ions going. And the devil on your shoulder's like, don't do that. Be grouchy. Go back to bed. Hide under the covers. I do it. I resist. I don't understand. But I think awareness is the first step to changing it. Right. So if you're, if you practice awareness of like, I know, I know this, I'm going to move on. I think that, that, is the first step. I remember in Annie Kaufman's interview, I we were speaking about meditation and you're like, I'm terrible at it. I haven't even done yoga during most of the pandemic. Yeah. Can I ask why? I've been wanting to ask you why? Because it's so much a part of who you are and you still live your life with an energy as if you are practicing yoga. So I've just been wanting to ask you this well, for months. Yoga is not just the movements. Yoga is not just the asanas. Okay. And that's the part that I haven't been practicing the actual physical asanas mm-hmm. of yoga, but I try to practice all of the other facets of yoga daily, which is the understanding the energetic part of yourself, understanding the chakras, looking for where they are in my life, trying to become present, trying to be aware of my intentions behind my actions. That's all yoga still. That's the part that I'm, I practice more. I, I won't say I'm better at it because I, I have to work at it every day. Right. But when I taught this thing last Sunday, I was nervous because I hadn't, I, I mean, I had taught it maybe a year ago and it's a four hour chakra intensive oh, class. Wow. So it's me talking about the chakras for four hours and we do a lot of movements. And, and I went in and I said, I'm so, I have to kind of level with you guys. <laughs> I'm like, so out of shape, everything's creaking just to get down to the floor. Like, I, you know, I'm going to do my best. But once I got rolling, I was like, oh my God, I forgot how much I love it. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is that resistance that we all keep doing to ourselves. But I also think you, we have to allow the ebb and flow in our life. If you are constantly working at something, you exhaust it. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes you have to give yourself permission to just go in and, and allow all the things you've learned or been through to process and germinate. Mm-hmm. Then when you step back out, you have a fresher perspective yeah. and you're able to learn something maybe even quicker. And you also practice the, the, um, resilience of getting back into a pose and you're shocked to how, how quickly you can touch those toes again, how quickly you can do that inversion again, even though you hadn't done it in so long, because the body wants to be well, 
And so springs back really fast. And I think, I just think I had to go inward for whatever reason. I had to take whatever energy, the physical part of that takes. And I had to put it inside and process it somewhere else. And I, now that I'm talking about it, I think it had to do with creativity because even though I had done small acts of creativity over the last few years, raising my son and going through all the things I've been through, I think I needed to take that physical energy and apply it to creativity for painting and then this podcast. And then once, now that I've got that ball rolling, I'm able to step back into the physical, I think, again. It's interesting too, because when you find something you love to do and you have that outlet, but it is also your job, which perhaps you could look at yoga in that way for the last 17 years, being on Broadway, then it becomes almost perfunctory. Is that, is that a real word? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the obligation of doing, you still can recognize how lucky you are to be doing what you love to do and what you've been called to do and what you feel you're really great at and have that outlet. But when it becomes a have to, some of the joy seeps out. So step again, stepping back to then reintroduce yourself to the joy of the doing it, I find to be beautiful. You said it's an ebb and flow and that's, that's exactly right. Sometimes whether that's two days away, four days away, four weeks away, then you step back into it and you go, ah, hello, joy. You rediscover. Of course. Yeah. And I, and I made a choice a while ago, not to do things that make me want to sigh and roll my eyes. I remember what, cause for a while I made the yoga jewelry. I did it for a long time. It was really fun. I met awesome people. I had a great time. And then one day someone commissioned a piece of jewelry and I sat down at the table and I went, and then I said, I'm done with jewelry because I'm not going to do anything in this half of my life that makes me go, I'm just not doing it anymore. I have to either find the joy in it or I'm moving into something new. And that's when I started painting. And then that's what led to all of this. So you have to honor that stuff. You do. Yeah. I hope you don't go for another couple of years with this one. Okay? No way. I love this. This is too fun. <laughs> I could do this podcast for years just to talk to people like that and then touch in and go, oh man. And it's amazing how often I think of our past guests. I think of almost all of them, I do too. all a lot. They'll just pop in my mind and I'll think of part of the conversation be like, I'm so happy I had that conversation. Just to have the opportunity to talk to these people that have influenced my life in tiny ways and big ways. Yeah. I think it's like such a gift. I love what we're doing. I'm having a ball. Me too. (laughs) Me too. Well, I love you. You're such a gift. And um, I'll see you next week. All right, girl. Love you. Bye. Bye. So if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe, and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. A big thank you goes out to our assistant and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you to Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music. Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages Podcast logo. Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer. And Allison Arns, our PR and social media expert. And thank you, our cast members, for joining us today. We hope you come back next week. <laughs>